Pints with Jack, Season 2, Episode 27. After Hours with Dale Alquist. Hello, and welcome to Pints with Jack. So, we've now finished this season's book, The Great Divorce, and last week Matt and I discussed Prince Caspian, this season's book from The Chronicles of Narnia. For the remaining weeks this season, we've got some really great guests on the show, and this week is going to be no exception. But first, I think it would probably help to relay a bit of backstory. As listeners will know, the focus on this podcast is C.S. Lewis, or Jack to his friends. However, a few months ago, Matt and I were talking, and I mentioned that I really wanted to start introducing the listeners to the rest of the Inklings, as well as those writers who exercised a profound influence on Lewis. And around the same time, in our San Diego C.S. Lewis book club, we were reading Surprised by Joy, which is Jack's spiritual autobiography. And in it, there was one name which appeared about 11 times, and that's G.K. Chesterton, the Prince of Paradox and the Apostle of Common Sense. Now, while he was still an atheist, Jack read a collection of Chesterton's essays, and much to his surprise, Chesterton made an immediate conquest of him. In fact, Lewis commented that liking an author may be as involuntary and improbable as falling in love. But falling in love, he did. Lewis loved Chesterton's humour, his good sense, his charm, and his goodness. Lewis regarded him as the most sensible man alive. Apart from, of course, his Christianity, because at this point, Lewis was still an atheist. And in particular, Lewis notes that in reading Chesterton's The Everlasting Man, he saw the whole Christian outline of history set out in a form that finally made sense to him. And in encountering Chesterton, Lewis wrote, I did not know what I was letting myself in for. A young man who wishes to remain a sound atheist cannot be too careful of his reading. So Chesterton made a huge impact on Lewis, so when I decided that I wanted to do an episode on Chesterton, my choice of guest was obvious. Aside from being a husband and a father of six, Dale Alquist is one of the most respected Chesterton scholars in the world. He's the president of the Chesterton Society, and was the creator of the popular EWTN series, The Apostle of Common Sense. And he's also written and edited books about Chesterton, such as The Apostle of Common Sense, Common Sense 101, and also The Knight of the Holy Ghost. He's also co-founder of a classical high school in Minneapolis, the Chesterton Academy, and the chairman of the Chesterton Schools Network. And not only that, back in 2013, he came and talked to the Chesterton class at Notre Dame on wonder and gratitude. And one of the students in that class that day was my co-host Matt. So, without further ado, Dale Alquist, welcome to Pints with Jack. Thank you so much, and it's just a great pleasure and privilege to be with you. Was there anything important that I missed out of your introduction which people should know about you? Oh, I'm sure that they're going to find out when when we start talking, and and then we can fill in the blanks. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Well, here on Pints with Jack, every week we have a drink of the week and a quote of the week. So, I'm drinking something which I assume Chesterton would appreciate, uh, a nice brown ale. That was actually going to be my first question to you. Do we know some of Chesterton's favorite alcoholic beverages? I did a bit of a Google search, but came up blank. Oh, well, Google's not going to tell you, but you're asking the right person. He preferred red wine. It would, he would have called it a claret in uh, England. It'd be a French Bordeaux. Mm-hmm. He, that was his drink of choice, and he drank it out of a tumbler. So <laughs> <laughs> he said he, uh, he did enjoy beer uh, when he was very thirsty. And he said, there's nothing better on a hot uh, English day than, you know, than, than a beer. But he, uh, 
wine was definitely his uh, his drink of choice, and he uh, he didn't uh, like any cocktails at all. He said that uh, he had no objection to vodka except that he had once tasted it. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> well. Our quote of the week, it's normally something from Lewis, but I thought we really had to go with something from Chesterton. And since we're pints with Jack, I thought it should be from Chesterton's philosophy of drinking. In Heretics, he says, drink because you are happy, but never because you are miserable. Never drink because you need it, for this is rational drinking and the way to death and hell. But drink because you do not need it, for this is irrational drinking and the ancient health of the world. So with that, cheers. Cheers. So to kick things off, how did you first encounter G.K. Chesterton? Well, I'm happy to tell you, uh, David, that it was because of C.S. Lewis. I was Correct a big C.S. Lewis fan. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, I was a big, big C.S. Lewis fan. I was reading Mere Christianity, uh, uh, and I probably was reading it for the second time. But I was um, working uh, one summer, this was during college, and I was working for my brother-in-law. And my brother-in-law was a recording artist, and he's someone that uh, quite a few people have heard of, except for those who haven't. But he was uh, <laughs> kind of the leading uh, influence in uh, early Jesus rock music. His name was Larry Norman. <sighs> and uh, uh, Larry Norman saw me reading the, uh, the book, Mere Christianity, and he said, do you like C.S. Lewis? I said, I love C.S. Lewis. And he said, have you ever heard of G.K. Chesterton? And I said, no, no, never heard of him. He said, well, here it comes, you know, just brace yourself. He said, if you, if you like, if you like uh, Lewis, you'll love Chesterton. And then he said, in fact, if you read Chesterton, you don't even need to read C.S. Lewis because all of C.S. Lewis is in Chesterton. Blasphemy. Exactly my reaction. <laughs> this was exactly my reaction. Blasphemy. Uh, and so I just, uh, you know, uh, tucked it away that, he, that someone had told me to read Chesterton. But that uh, that was all I did at that point. But then as soon as that happened, all of a sudden I started noticing Chesterton's name everywhere. And uh, and, and of course, it, I had never noticed it in C.S. Lewis's writings before, but then suddenly I did. And then I, I noticed it particularly. I read the book uh, A Severe Mercy by Sheldon Van Auken. And uh, in that, he uh, uh, has several letters uh, written to him from C.S. Lewis. And in one of those letters, um, Lewis says, recommends to, to Sheldon Van Auken to read Everlasting Man because he said it's the best book on Christian apologetics. Uh, and so that was really what planted the seed. I said, okay, well, that's the book I'm going to read. That, that was so influential on... Uh, on Lewis, that's the book I'm going to read. But it was probably another year before I finally uh, picked up my first Chesterton book, and it was that book, The Everlasting Man. And it was, of course, on my honeymoon. That seems perfectly reasonable to me. <laughs> <laughs> as I started Chesterton on my honeymoon, so as my wife says, I've been married to Chesterton as long as I've been married to her. <laughs> and uh, and you know, and my sensation when I first read it, you know, was reading this this. Right, was I, I was probably grasping maybe 10% of what I was reading. This is not the right book to start with, but it is, of course, an outstanding book. But um, I did have the sensation that, that Dorothy L. Sayers uh, said she had when she first read Chesterton, which was 
a strong wind coming into the building and blowing out all the windows. <laughs> I mean, he, he was a writer unlike any other that I'd ever encountered. I mean, I totally enjoyed C.S. Lewis. Chesterton really does not write like him at all because he just has his own particular style and he, he sets people up in a very, uh, uh, really uh, unsuspecting way. He, he leads you along a very scenic and winding path and suddenly swoops in with his killer point without you expecting it. It just takes your breath away. Um, and he pulls together so many things because he writes about literature, but he writes about philosophy and theology and art and beauty and mythology and the, his command of everything he's writing about just total ease and then his wonderful paradoxical style and of course quotable 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 <laughs> <laughs> there are so many little quotations that you see posted on social media that come from chesterton do you have any particular favorites well, um, I do. There's a, you know, there's a great Chesterton quote that we, we should always quote, which is the, uh, the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It's been found difficult and left untried. <laughs> I mean, that, that is just the, the mantra. But you know, things like truth must be stranger than fiction because we have made fiction to suit ourselves. Mm. Or, um, you know, men will not argue about what they call evils. They'll argue about which evils are excusable. Yes, that, that <laughs> one always gets me. <laughs> yeah. One right after the other. I'm sure we'll hit some more before we're done talking here. Well, I'm sure a good number of our listeners are familiar with Chesterton, but I'm also equally sure that he's completely unfamiliar to some. Right. So would you mind telling us a little bit about Chesterton's life and his own spiritual journey? Yes. And first of all, a lot of people just assume that Chesterton was one of the Inklings, and he was not. In fact, ironically, he never even met C.S. Lewis. Mm -hmm. uh, he was about 25 years older than, than Lewis. And so Lewis was very influenced by Chesterton, very influenced by him, but uh, Chesterton really never even knew who, who, who Lewis was. Uh, he, he was born in 1874. Uh, he, uh, he died uh, in 1936. So his, his writing career was the early 20th century, that first third of the 20th century, and during that time was one of the most prolific writers who ever lived. He wrote um, 100 books. He wrote uh, introductions to uh, 200 more books. He wrote uh, volumes and volumes of poetry. His, his poetry filled three thick volumes. He wrote, uh, of course, short stories and novels, and, of course, his most famous set of short stories were some mysteries involving a Catholic priest named Father Brown. <laughs> and uh, he was a great lover of detective fiction and really, truly uh, hugely influential on detective fiction because up until Chesterton's time, all detective fiction was variations of Sherlock Holmes with the, with the super sleuth, the super detective. And Father Brown is this very unassuming, humble, uh, quiet, <laughs> you don't even know he's there. And, uh, you know, he, he's the underdog detective who you don't think knows anything and it just happens to see the one thing that no one else sees. And of course he, he makes the detective story into a morality tale and it's, they're like little sermons is what they are, but they're still brilliant mysteries as well. So, so that, that, that was 
really one of his most influential pieces of writing. Uh, but his living, his his career was was journalism, and uh, he he you know unlike Lewis, who was an academic, Chesterton never went to college and uh, made his living as a, as as a, a writer for the for the newspapers and and truly uh, had to write all the time, and that's why he was so prolific. He wrote thousands and thousands of essays. And we're talking over 5,000 literary essays. Wasn't he trained as an illustrator? It wasn't even in literature or writing. Yeah, yeah. he started to train as an illustrator because that's what he thought he was going to be. So he went to art school, but he dropped out of art school. Uh, he said, I discovered the easiest of all professions, which is easy for him to say. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and what about his spiritual journey? Was he raised in the house of faith? How did that change over the course of his life? He was raised in a very um, non-creedal household. It was, a, I guess, the, the equivalent of Unitarian. So his parents had no creedal Christian faith whatsoever. And uh, he, was, uh, he was a very loving and artistic household, but they basically let him uh, go free and just explore whatever he wanted. And one of the things he started exploring was uh, spiritualism. And he said that he believed in the devil before he believed in God mm. and uh, had kind of a, a dramatic and uh, traumatic experience as well with, with you know, just something very evil, something demonic in his life that, uh, that almost, almost brought everything to an end. He almost, uh, he almost killed himself. It was such a dust he went into. But he, he said he was, uh, he was saved by clinging to one thin thread of thanks. And he started to put together a uh, a philosophy from there based on the axiom that existence is better than non-existence. Mm. And he said you could build you could build a very good philosophy with with that starting point, and it led him to uh, to Christianity. And uh, he uh, he said he he started out to found his own heresy. He found in, in the end it turned out to be orthodoxy. It, his new religion turned out to be something that someone had discovered uh, almost 2,000 years before him. <laughs> and uh, so that, that book about his conversion to Christianity is, is orthodoxy, and that's a, a great story of, of how he came to believe in Christianity. And it's, it's a completely fresh and uh, original approach to the, to the faith, because he, he didn't come to Christianity by... Um, reading classic apologetics. On the contrary, he read uh, what the critics of Christianity said. He, he read what the enemies and what the opponents, uh, what their philosophies were, and he realized that all of, they didn't make sense and all they did was point to the truth. <laughs> so that's how he, he came to believe. And wasn't it also something about the conflicting nature of the criticisms of Christianity, claiming on the one hand it was too ascetic, on the other hand it was too indulgent? Right, all the all the, the the criticisms came from just completely opposite uh, uh, directions. That kind of helped him understand that Christianity is the central thing, and all these others are the things on the on the side. And uh, but but it also made him understand that uh, that there is this paradoxical nature to Christianity because there's this paradoxical nature to truth because and truth is in this paradox that there's this tension between. Um, things that don't seem to go together. Uh, you know, the classic one is uh, fate and free will. Of, of course, we have to believe in a, in a God who's all-powerful because there's, it doesn't make any sense to believe in any other kind of God 
but it also doesn't make any sense to believe in a God that doesn't give us free will and, and choice because that means that all of our actions really are meaningless if we if we don't have a sense of volition. And uh, he says that that, uh, that only Christianity balanced those two truths. And of course, the ultimate paradox is Jesus Christ himself, who's fully God and fully man, not half one and half the other, but both things at once. And, uh, and, and that's, he says, the cross really is the sign of contradiction. It has a, a paradox at its center. Now, Lewis's life and his work was greatly affected by his wife, Joy Davidman. And a few months ago, I gave my girlfriend, Marie, who is the real Chesterton fan, uh, a copy of The Woman Who Was Chesterton. And that was about Francis Chesterton, and she absolutely loved it. Can you tell us a little bit about the partnership and uh, dynamic with his wife? Yes, and I'm, I'm so grateful to Nancy for having written that book, uh, and for, for falling in love with Frances herself, because this was a woman who truly did live in a very large shadow. <laughs> because, you know, one thing we know about Chester, he was a, a very large man. You know, he was the, the one who said he was the politest man in all of England because he could stand up on a bus and offer his seat to three women at one time. Right? <laughs> and so he, um, he uh, fell in love with this, with this woman at a, uh, at a literary society that she hosted and um, uh, just was so completely devoted to her. And she, she knew that she had her hands full because that this, this was a creative genius that she, that she had. And, you know, he decided he wanted to be, make a living as a writer and she stood by him and he, his genius was something that, um, that she had to, basically manage his life because he was always uh, in a creative process, always writing the next thing to get beat the next deadline. And, uh, and so he just did not think about those little things in life that the rest of us are, are uh, you know, take, take up all our time. So she made sure he got fed and dressed and to his appointments <laughs> and, you know, took care of the business because um, he was just absolutely incapable of doing that himself. And, uh, and that was the greatness of their relationship. She, he could not be the writer he was if it had not been for her to take care of the details in his life. And so they were dependent on each other. He was, you know, just famously absent-minded. There's a great story of him getting off a train and sending a telegram to his wife Emmett Market Harbor, where ought I to be? <laughs> and so she she made it possible um, for for that writer to to exist. And so it was it was a great a great symphony that they played together. The great tragedy in their life was when they discovered that uh, that Francis could not uh, bear children, and uh, that's that was uh, something they really had hoped for. And uh, so they, when that happened, they kind of just filled their lives with other people's children. Always had uh, children in their house because they always wanted the uh, the the commotion of of children around them. And and so they uh, they had a, they served kind of as surrogate parents and godparents to to many other children. But it was a life of uh, of extreme creativity and travel and speak speaking. Um, and uh, and they did it all together. They just were utterly close and dependent. When, when Chesterton died, um, 
Francis died just two years later, and George Bernard Shaw uh, was asked what she died of, and, she, and he said widowhood. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> and it, when, when, after he died, she said, I just can't believe he doesn't need me anymore. A few weeks ago, Marie and I were in England and we visited a number of the Chesterton sites in London as well as the Oxford Oratory, which has that large cache of his belongings. And uh, we discovered all of these puppets and little cardboard theatres that they had assembled. (laughs) So charming, yeah. Definitely a marriage of fun. Yeah, yes, she collected dolls as well. And uh, yes, they they obviously had had great joy together and... uh, and, you know, he writes really well about marriage. You know, his 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 funny line about, you know, when uh, Prince Charming, uh, you know, take, takes the princess off into the, the sunset. He says, they lived happily ever after. He says, they didn't live peacefully ever after. <laughs> <laughs> he says, I'm sure they threw the furniture at each other. But, you know, he says, he says marriage is a duel to the death. <laughs> <laughs> But but he says, you know, it's the greatest work of engineering in all of human history, the bridge built between a man and a woman. And uh, it's a fabulous view of marriage. He's always been such a great defender of marriage and the family. He just spoke out against um, how divorce would start to destroy a society and just turned out to be very prophetic in that regard. And speaking of his writing, his output was, for want of a better word, titanic. Yeah. Uh, Could you just give a a quick tour of the kinds of things that Chesterton wrote, as well as some of his most important works. So, yeah, in, in those hundred books, they include books of um, certainly the the philosophy and uh, and Christianity uh, books are, are are the ones that come to mind first. Orthodoxy, and everlasting man. He wrote two biographies of saints: uh, Saint Francis of Assisi and Saint Thomas Aquinas, which are just outstanding uh, treatments of those two. Uh, also important figures in history. Uh, he wrote um, books on literary criticism, which are just absolutely His book on Charles Dickens is, I think, one of his greatest books. And you you would think, well, book of literary criticism, so what? He just takes you on a journey uh, through Dickens' writings that, that you are, are just hanging, your mouth is hanging open the whole time you're reading it, that, that someone could write so beautifully about Dickens' books, because uh, Dickens was such an influential writer on him, and so uh, th- these are journeys into the into the human uh, character, and uh, just marvelous books. So a lot of books on literary criticism. He wrote, wrote on William Blake and Robert Louis Stevenson and Tennyson as well. And then he wrote um, uh, a, a bunch of travel books, because he traveled so much. He, he went to America, he went to Jerusalem, uh, went to Ireland, so he wrote books uh, on those. Uh, countries. He wrote on economics and on social justice. His book, The Outline of Sanity, um, is is a, a really uh, a, a, not not only a book that continues to be rediscovered, but uh, very prophetic on on the fact that uh, the common man is is uh, constantly under pressure from big government and big business, and uh, the family should be the center of society and not the individual or the community. Um, and then he uh, wrote, of course, several novels. His most outstanding novels are The Man Who Was Thursday, which is uh, a cosmic detective story. It's sort of a retelling of the Book of Job, a book, Man Alive, which is a great treatment about marriage. The Ball and the Cross is about this duel between this uh, Catholic and this atheist who are 
they're trying to fight a duel, but they keep getting interrupted, so they have to keep talking to each other while they're finding a good place where they can try to kill each other. And uh, and so it's this ongoing debate throughout the whole book with a bunch of very comic episodes. And uh, and I, I, as I said to some people, it, it has all the same themes as the Brothers Dostoevsky, only it has two advantages over Dostoevsky. Um, it's it's short by about seven hundred pages. That's a lot funnier. <laughs> Those are two good advantages. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Earlier, I mentioned that Lewis specifically singled out the Everlasting Man, and you mentioned that he does the same thing in A Severe Mercy. So, what was that about, and what is it about that book? Do you think that particularly grabbed Lewis? Yes. Well, it's it's certainly it's. Um... A novel approach to Christianity, but in in the book he argues that um, one of the main reasons people don't understand Christianity is because they're too close to it, and uh, they are reacting to the thing that is closest to themselves, and that's why they don't see it. And so he he tries to get us to back up and see the whole faith from a, a greater distance, so we can see the whole thing and see what an unusual thing it is. But he has to start with all the history leading up to Christ. And, and I think this is what really captured uh, Lewis's mind and heart. The, that big picture approach of Chesterton's was something so unusual and so well done in, in that book. And then, of course, when he gets to Christ, his, his explanation of history is that history just, everything changes when Christ steps out of the stage. And you cannot explain what happened any other way except the Christian explanation. And you can't even explain who Jesus is unless you say he's a madman or the devil or, or a liar. But he, he either is who he says he was or he was a complete charlatan. But that does not explain what happened afterwards in history, if he was a charlatan or if he was a crazy man or if he was uh, a devil. Clearly some stuff there that Lewis used in mere Christianity. Yeah, these are exactly Lewis's arguments, and this is this is why my this is why my brother-in-law made made that uh, blasphemous comment because Lewis really did get the arguments. He got all the arguments from from Chesterton right there. Yeah, I'd perhaps <laughs> argue that Lewis doesn't make you work quite as hard as Chesterton does. It's true. Lewis is a very very clear writer, and you're right. You you do not work as hard, but the the extra work you do with uh, with Chesterton. It's so it's a, such a great payoff. That's, that's, that's <laughs> such a payoff. <laughs> and of course, you're gonna get, you're gonna get more one-liners from Chesterton along the way than you get from Lewis. <laughs> but given this massive literary output and popularity at the time, why is it that so many people haven't heard of him? Yes, he was popular. He was really one of the most popular, well-known writers in England and in the world, and. Um, it is really baffling that someone that popular could uh, just disappear, just fall off the map completely. And, uh, you know, Lewis, uh, Lewis definitely enjoyed uh, a huge resurgence in his own popularity, probably even bigger than in his lifetime, uh, starting in the, in the 70s, uh, with things like mere Christianity and the Chronicles of Mary. And, and frankly, it was because I think he... Uh, you know, my evangelical friends did such a good job of marketing him. <laughs> you know? mm -hmm. and, and the other thing is, Lewis is easier to get a hold of in terms of he wrote only a finite number of books. Justice just wrote an infinite number. And, uh, <laughs> it's, it, that was, that's one of the things that makes him harder to uh, access. Yeah. But I think 
I, I think one of the main reasons that Chesterton, you know, faded from popularity is he he died right before World War II, and and there's such a change came on the earth uh, as a result of that war. It kind of broke the century in half, and 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 just people forgot about everything that happened before the war, including a joyful writer like uh, like Chesterton, and and of course he wrote about he wrote for a secular audience, but he wrote about God for a secular audience, and. Um, he, he wrote for the newspapers. That's just so unthinkable now. Uh, he, he just doesn't fit into any category. He he wrote about all these different things and truly doesn't have one category to put in. And you know, other other writers can easily be placed on one shelf, and that's where they that's where they go. Chesterton, you don't even know where to put him. Yeah, he's, he's the three hundred pound writer who's fallen through the cracks and. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> So I think that's another reason for his his life. But you know, the the other one's kind of practical. Why he why his, people do about him because he was a journalist. They read him in the newspapers, and um, when he stopped writing for the newspapers, which is which is when he died, they stopped reading him. His his books were always less popular than his own and his regular uh, newspaper columns. Hmm. How should people go about beginning Chesterton? Uh, I mean, what advice would you give someone for wanting to get into his writings for the first time? And I give you complete permission to talk about your own books, since I think they're the best introduction. <laughs> well, if you hadn't given me permission, I would have defied you, uh, because uh, I, I really did write those books uh, for the express purpose of, of opening the door and getting people to uh, to start reading Chester, because he is so intimidating. People don't know where to start. And and that was exactly the, the purpose of the Apostle of Common Sense and Common Sense One. Uh, the, my first book, the, the Apostle of Common Sense, is an overview of his most important books, and uh, Common Sense One One is a is a treatment of Chesterton by the main themes he writes about. So they're they're completely supplementary to each other, and they're both good introductions, but uh, but they don't uh, they don't uh, overlap either. So and then. Um, and then if you can just start with some pure Chesterton, I would start with a book of essays. And we, uh, we put together a collection of essays called In Defense of Sanity, the best essays of Chesterton. And, uh, you know, any any collection of Chesterton's essays would be the best essays, but these, these are about 60-plus classic essays. And I think that's an excellent way to uh, to start the journey with, with Chesterton. And then, of course, there's the Father Brown stories, and at some point, a person has to read uh, Orthodoxy and then The Everlasting Man. Well, on that point, our C.S. Lewis reading group, we're actually going to take a little break from Lewis and we're about to start Orthodoxy. Do you have any tips on approaching that book in particular? Yes, yes. The main thing is to understand that you're going to be underlining the whole book and not getting his arguments because you've been st- he keeps stopping you with great one-liners. Hmm. And so... And so You'll, you'll get to a chapter, you'll underline the whole chapter, and then you'll say, well, now what was that about? Um, <laughs> so so there, there, is, there is kind of a link. But I would encourage people, if they, if they uh, your listeners, if they, if they want to send an email to, to uh, uh, the Chester Society, info at chesterton.org, we'll send them sort of a study guide to orthodoxy, which will kind of help guide them through the book and keep them, keep them focused on what Chesterton's arguments are, because he's, he's basically starting by laying out how modern philosophy is a dead end, and uh, it, it's it's self-destructive and 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 leads to madness. 
and and then he starts building up a, an argument for Christianity, which starts in the nursery. The Ethics of Elfland is one of the great single chapters in all of uh, Chesterton's writings, and his treatment of fairy tales, which leads into a treatment of science in the same chapter, is really a stunning tour de force. Uh, and they basically start bringing some of the main Christian arguments out uh, and comparing them with other religions. Excellent stuff. Uh, Marie asked me, which biography would you say gives the reader the best sense of what Gilbert was really like as a man? Oh, well, okay. Certainly an unfair question since, I, since I've written one of those biographies. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and that's, you know, the Night of the Holy Ghost is, is the, the most recent one. And, um, and one, you know, one of the things I did try to do in that book was, was do that very thing of uh, some of the biographies, they get a little bit bogged down in the details of his life. And I just tried to give more of a, a, a sense of, uh, of the, the, the main highlights of what people were struck by in his life as, as a man. And so I did try to do that. But I really like Joseph Pierce's biography, Wisdom and Innocence. The authoritative uh, work is Macy Ward's book, Gilbert Keith Chesterton. But I think the one to really answer your question specifically is the sequel that Macy Ward wrote called Return to Chesterton, uh, which gives uh, many more personal anecdotes. And I think he really comes to life. You really get a sense of, of being in the room with him in that, uh, in that sequel, Macy Ward's uh, Return to Chesterton. Excellent. That sounds like the thing that she was looking for. One of our listeners, Vincent, he asked about the cause for Chesterton's canonization. Because I recently saw in the news that uh, Bishop Peter Doyle from the Diocese of Northampton, the part of England where Chesterton lived and died, he announced that uh, he's decided not to open the cause for canonization. And he gave three reasons. He said there's no local cult, no local devotion to Chesterton. Uh, he said he couldn't tease out the pattern of Chesterton's personal spirituality, and he also raised the issue of anti-Semitism. Would you care to respond to this? <laughs> sure. Uh, the, the Chesterton Society did issue uh, an official statement specifically addressing each of those things, which is available on our website at chesterton.org. But very quickly, um, I've I've been working with uh, Bishop Doyle for, for many years, trying to get him to open the cause, and I've gotten to know him. He's been very kind and gracious to me, but he just never really I could never get him to have any enthusiasm for Chesterton. Uh, he, he, he didn't really know about him himself, and so um, I think he was always a little bit puzzled by all the interest in, in Chesterton. And, of course, I think he was especially puzzled that there was so much international interest. Um, mm. that, that, you know, there's, there's a huge devotion to Chesterton in, uh, in America, but also in Italy and in Croatia, in Brazil and Argentina and Spain. You know, this is this is a, a writer who who has just a vast appeal to, and, and people have found uh, a great spiritual friend uh, in Chesterton because he's helped bring them, uh, you know, closer to God, closer to the truth, and he's he's really he is a companion, and it's, I could never get give the the bishop that sense, um, and and so he so he fell back on the argument that it wasn't uh, a local cult, but there is a local cult, and so I I would disagree that that it's, it might be small, but there are people right there in that diocese that are devoted to Chesterton. Um, as far as the second one, that's a very uh, vague uh, objection. Uh, uh, Chesterton's the pattern of his own spirituality. As a, as a lay person, um, he didn't write about his own interior life uh, the way 
someone who founded a religious order might have, you know, and uh, mm-hmm. uh, and so he, he he was a journalist and he was he was writing about the world and he was writing about God, but he wasn't writing about himself. In fact, he was too humble to write about himself, and uh, he, so he doesn't discuss his own prayer life. He he discusses. Um, you know, uh, just really the the mystical truths of of the creator of the universe and the redeemer of, of the universe. And uh, so he does it when he writes about St. Francis of Assisi or, or St. Thomas Aquinas. That's, that's where you get the sense that this guy has great mystical insight. And so I think that there was great evidence that, that the bishop, I think, really did not give, give serious uh, credence to or serious uh, evaluation of but the third one, of course, is the most troubling of all the uh, objections. And I, I will say that the bishop did not call Chesterton anti-Semitic, and I'm glad he didn't, but he says there's an issue. And the issue is that, you know, Chesterton is writing in a different time, and he says things that are politically incorrect. And I think that our present political correctness cannot be the way we judge a writer from 100 years ago. I mean, there's there's no hatred or hostility towards the Jews. Uh, he clearly had a philosophy of the brotherhood of all men. He defended the Jews when they were attacked. And so it's a, it's a false charge if anyone calls him anti-Semitic. But of course, there's people who say, well, the, look at the way he describes the Jew in this fictional uh, you know, uh, story right here. That that's, that's, shows a stereotype. Well, you know, a stereotype is different from anti-Semitism. It's, it's, not, it does, it's not hostility or hatred. Yeah, on the contrary, he, he said, I will die defending the last Jew in Europe. Excellent stuff. Uh, a few random questions. Is it true that some of Cheston's works inspired Michael Collins to lead the movement for Irish independence and Mahatma Gandhi to end British colonial rule in India? Yes, those are both true statements. Um, wow. Those are the sort of things that you know people need to be aware of rather than uh, vague accusations about Chester being anti-Semitic. So the, the book uh, that inspired Michael Collins was two of Chesterton's novels. One was The Napoleon of Notting Hill, which was Chesterton's first novel, which is about a London suburb that rises up and takes up arms against the rest of England and declares its independence. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very uh, creative and uh, also, it's it's a novel set in the future, and you know what year it's set in, David? It's set in 1984. Ooh. Yeah, what's that? <laughs> and then, uh, and then his um, the other novel uh, that he, that uh, inspired Michael Collins. In fact, he used it in some of his own strategies. Was the man who was Thursday, and um, there you have a group of anarchists, and and their their strategy is to just go about in public without wearing disguises and having their meetings in public places because nobody would suspect they're up to anything uh, no good <laughs> if, they're, <laughs> if they're meeting openly. And the British cabinet was actually given copies of that novel to read to better understand Michael Collins. Wow. Yeah. And then the, the Gandhi story is really fascinating. It was, a, it was an essay in the Illustrated London News that Gandhi read, and it was basically uh, a similar theme to to Irish independence. He was commenting on the fact that uh, 
there was a group of young Indian intellectuals who were, um, you know, complaining about the British Empire not letting them be more British, not let, you know, not recognizing them as more British. He says, why don't they worry about being more Indian? You know, because Chester was just no, no believer in the British Empire. He, he was a little Englander. He, he believed in a nation. He didn't believe in an empire. And, uh, you know, he, he just argued that, that they should they should think like a nation and not like a, a member of an empire. And that just completely was a light bulb going on for, for Gandhi. And he had the essay translated uh, into jihadi and uh, circulated it. That was really the beginning of, of his, uh, his work for Indian independence. Wow. And lastly, but by no means least, our listeners want to know more about the work of the Society of Gilbert Keith Chesterton. What do you do? Well, I get to read Chesterton and, and laugh and enjoy him. So, I, you know, I've got the best job in the world. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, we, we do publish a magazine, Gilbert Magazine, uh, which is uh, full of his writings and ideas, and um, as well as uh, essays and articles by contemporary writers. And we write about art and the faith. And uh, um, we, we, we have a prison ministry, uh, and we, uh, we started a, a bunch of classical uh, schools around the, uh, around the U.S., and there's, there's some in other countries as well. Classical secondary education uh, based a lot on, on Chesterton's ideas, but they're, they're, very, uh, they're very Catholic in their philosophy. So we, 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 you know, Chesterton, we, the one thing we haven't mentioned was his conversion to Catholicism. Chesterton's uh, uh, cause is really important to a lot of Catholic converts who really would like to see him uh, canonized because uh, he played such a role in their in their own faith but the, the the education is one of our ways of trying to transform society from the ground up by just giving young people a good education and, and teaching them how to think and uh, make them into complete thinkers like gk chesterton was i imagine that there are classes on beer drinking and pipe smoking am i am i getting that right <laughs> No, but we do uh, we do uh, do war with the Puritans in every way we can. <laughs> <laughs> That's good enough. Uh, and could you please tell us how people could find out more about the society? Yes, please uh, visit our website at chesterton.org. Uh, if you go to chesterton.com, you'll get hydraulic valves. Bonus. So um, chesterton.org, O-R-G, and that's full of... Uh, information how they can join the society and uh, get uh, the books that we've been talking about. And also, um, there's just a great, great resources on that website as well. Well, thank you so much for talking with us today about Chesterton, the Knight of the Holy Ghost. And speaking of which, I'm going to give away a copy of Dale's book. So all you have to do is post an Instagram message or Twitter with a Chesterton quote, tag at Pints with Jack, and we'll give away a book at the end of the season, the same time when we announce the winner of the signed Peter Kreeft book, Symbol or Substance. And if anybody would like to join our San Diego group to study orthodoxy, message us at the usual places at restlesspilgrim.net and pintsforjack.com. Uh, but Dale, thank you again for everything that, you, that you're doing to encourage people to read Chesterton and for talking to us today. A great blessing, and I hope that we can talk again sometime. God bless. I would love that. And next week, we'll have another special guest on the show when we'll be going further up and further in. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs>